Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. I have the lovely Beth with me today. Uh, Beth Wyatt this is because we've got two Beths now just to confuse people even more. Hey Beth. Hi Alex, how are you? I'm good. You're really excited about this one, aren't you? Tell us why. I am actually, yeah. (laughs) So we've got some Georgian history on the podcast, which I don't think we've had for a very long time. So this is very exciting. Um, So we're delighted to be joined today by Professor Devaney Lozer, and she's Regents Professor of English at Arizona State University and a Guggenheim Fellow. And Devaney is the author or editor of um, several books about literature um, and by women, and we're talking today about her new book, Sister Novelists, the trailblazing Porter sisters who paved the way for Austin and the Brontes. Hi, Devaney. Hello, Beth. Hello, Alex. So glad to be here. <laughs> I'm so ashamed. I've never heard of the Porter sisters. I feel really <laughs> like I think this is the exact point of why we're doing this episode, isn't it, Beth? Exactly. Yeah. So we can all learn learn a bit more about them. Um, and, and as in the title, you know, the, the most kind of famous sister pairings really in literature are the, the Bronte sisters. But having, you know, been reading Devonese book, um, you know, Jane and Anna Maria Porter, um, yeah, sound like amazing women and writers in their own right. So I'm looking forward to, to delving into into their lives and careers through the podcast. Well, I'm excited to tell more people about the Porters. You're not unusual in not having heard of them. It's uh, it's perfectly commonplace, even for experts, not to know who they are. So you've been researching them for years, haven't you? So between them, they published 26 books. So can you just give us a brief introduction to these women? Who are they and why were you inspired to write their joint biography? Absolutely. They were sister novelists who started writing very young, Anna Mariah, and she pronounced her name Mariah. We know that because she wrote a poem in which she rhymed it fire, which I love. <laughs> so Mariah and Jane uh, grew up really with little more than a charity school education, but they very much fell in love with reading, writing, and supporting each other. And Mariah was publishing her first books in her teens. 
And by their 20s, the two of them were famous. And by the end of their 20s, household names. So they really came onto the literary scene fast and furious at an early period of their lives with both critical acclaim and popular success. And so they went on to publish separately and together these dozens of books. In the 19th century, people would have known who they were internationally. They were globally famous. But by the mid-20th century, they'd really fallen out of literary history. So I hope that my biography will bring them back and bring their story back. Yeah, we really hope so as well. After you know, just having like a glimpse reading the book and you know, even starting reading the book and just wanting to know so much more about them, they're just absolutely brilliant. And um, so you gave kind of a hint there to their childhood, which was was quite kind of difficult in in many ways. Um, so it'd be um, good to hear a little bit more um, from you about that, and also then afterwards how they actually came to be interested in in history and literature. Lovely, great questions. And you know, I, I think. The the important thing to tell your listeners, too, is that Jane Porter was born at almost the exact moment in two weeks before Jane Austen. So often I think people come to the Porter sisters expecting it all to be Jane Austen-y. <laughs> and in some ways it is. But the way I like to think of it is kind of like a funhouse mirror of Jane Austen. So they were born into a middle class family, but their father, an army surgeon, died within you know a year of Anna Maria's birth. So that set the family on a really difficult and different course because he left them without resources. The mother, Mrs. Porter, had eight, uh, had five children under age eight. So, you know, imagine that situation. She was very down on her luck. She ended up taking the family from her native town of Durham to Edinburgh, where she tried to set up a boarding house. And the, that was where the sisters first started with their middle brother, Robert Kerr Porter in a charity school. And it was, as I said, their only formal schooling, but they had a great teacher who really fired them up. And so you asked, how did they become interested in history? I think those early experiences in Edinburgh with this fabulous teacher, George Fulton, and with the many people they came across through the boarding house that their mother ran, which was primarily geared to medical students, they came across a lot of learned people and a lot of really interesting working class people. And they were fired up by the atmosphere of Edinburgh and especially by the oral history of Scotland. And so I think that's what started them down an interest in history. There's some parallels with the Brontes later on, isn't there, in that they experiment with writing when they were children. Um you, you've already mentioned Anna Maria. She published her first book aged 14. How would you describe their early fiction? Well, I think their early fiction is very playful. And again, if you've read the Brontes uh, Juvenilia or Jane Austen's Juvenilia, it's probably more similar to the Brontes. They made up these fantasy worlds and these romance worlds, but also they were clearly drawing on their own experiences. So there are quite worldly stories by Anna Maria about children in poverty and the kinds of work that a teenage girl might have been um, drawn into or tricked into, including sex work. So you, these are very worldly series, uh, you know, themes for young people to be writing about. But others of the stories are about wizards and, and fantasy. And, you know, so they're very playful stories too. They were just, they were working a lot of their interests in folklore and romance alongside the things they were obviously experiencing or at least um, observing in real life. And um, just on the romance element there, I know this wasn't in our questions, but throughout the book, you see um, how they're inspired by the the kind of romantic and friendship entanglements in their own lives that they then bring into their book. So could you say a little bit about um, the men in their life? 
Well, the most important men in their lives were probably their three brothers, but this did not necessarily turn out to be a good thing for the two sisters, because the three brothers who should have supported their widowed mother as they grew and should have supported their unmarried sisters really fell down on the job most of the time. And the the book goes into that. But it was their brother, Robert Kerr Porter, they were closest to, who became a famous panoramic artist and who knew all of the Royal Academy artists and introduced them into this circle of poor but ultimately famous artists, poets, editors, and the the girls, and they were at this time teenagers, so they were still girls, started publishing poetry and just inserting themselves as forces in this world of men. So they also then got crushes on boys and, you know, ended up falling in love with some of them. And the fact that we know such detail about all of these affairs of the heart that they went through is because they saved all of their letters. And so these letters, thousands of letters still survive, as many as 7,000 in three different repositories in the United States alone that I was able to draw on to rebuild the story, not only of their fascinating careers and their difficult family conflicts, but all of these times that they fell in love, mostly with rakes who they thought they could reform. And we all know now that that does not (laughs) tend to go very well. Uh, And it did not go very well for them. But these were really interesting, handsome men. And we get a sense of the kinds of things that Jane and Mariah did to try to forward these men's careers, because they were kinds of agents for these men too, surprisingly, and how the men would end up uh, disappointing them, but then ultimately becoming fodder for their historical novels. They used all these experiences as they reinfused history and their fiction. Brilliantly. So Nina's listening in on this just out of sheer interest. She's so jealous right now. She does Victorian women. She's like, 7,000 letters. I hate you. <laughs> I wish I had 7,000 letters for some of my women. Uh, yeah. She's muting herself so that you can't hear her rage. Um, so you've already mentioned it's not easy for a woman to forge a writing career. This is a world of men. And how did they meet this challenge? I love them already. It sounds like just they met it head on. They were amazing and their lives were so colorful. And I think the most difficult thing for them, especially earlier in their careers, the difficulties were maintaining a polite reputation while becoming public women, because these were two categories that were not seen as going together very easily because their mother had no education. And frankly, I think their mother is wonderful. She's plain spoken, uneducated. She was a Wilkite in her early years. She loved reform and politics, but she really did not have the wherewithal to help introduce her daughters into the literary world. So in their teens, they began to find other female mentors who are about a generation older than they were. One of them was the very polite and appropriate and royally connected uh, Mrs. de Crespigny, or I think in British English, you would say de Crepigny. And uh, the other was Mary Robinson, the very famous courtesan, actress, feminist, and uh, poet, writer. She was also in their lives in a very close way. But these women did not, they wanted to sink their claws into the girls. And the very polite one did not want them being around Mrs. Robinson, because even the whiff of a, a girl being a friend of or a having as a mentor, Mrs. Robinson, put their own political, their own sexual reputations at risk. And so I have a chapter where I talk about how things came to a head with these two warring female mentors, the polite and the very exciting 
very talented, but very impolite. Um, and, you know, so I, I think nav- navigating those things was incredibly challenging for the Porter sisters. And also challenging was um, navigating the release of the books and whether to publish anonymously or put, you know, Miss or Mrs. Porter and kind of, yeah, dealing with any potential fallout once the reviews came in. And in your book, there are some, you know, wonderful extracts from reviews, um, both good and bad. So if you might be able to tell us a little bit about kind of the the reception that the sisters got, um, both from critics and from their fellow authors. Thanks for this question, Beth, because these parts of the book both infuriate me, but they also like they're they're a triumph because every time these young women got these negative reviews, some of which literally told them, stop publishing, stop writing. Uh, One said, don't just read for 10 years and then maybe come back with a book, but really better don't come back with any books at all. And these were in main review periodicals that everybody would have read then. And especially Mariah, who published first under her own name, got these responses and she clearly ignored them. So that's the part to me that's a triumph, you know, that that she had enough of a support system and enough wherewithal in herself not to pay attention. But part of the reason that she wasn't paying attention is because they needed the money. So this this was done and they published under their own names for economic reasons. They actually had publishers come to them and say, I know you want to publish this book anonymously. They did sometimes publish a few things anonymously where there was a reason to do so. But a publisher came to Jane Porter and said, I am begging you, please put your name on this book because I will make more money if you do. And she caved and agreed to put her name on it when she had wanted to publish anonymously. So I don't think we often imagine that publishers were putting pressure on women writers to put their names to the to their books, or at least not at this point, not at the turn of the, you know, from the 18th into the 19th century. We don't imagine publishers doing that. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. One thing I find really interesting, they were childhood friends with um, their fellow historical fiction novelist, Walter Scott, who never publicly acknowledged his debt to their ideas. Imagine my surprise. Can you tell us more? Yes, this is a very fraught part of their lives, especially as they aged. And, you know, there will be people listening here who know Sir Walter Scott very, very well. <laughs> uh, he did in his historical novel, Waverly, from 1814, which he published anonymously, of course. He did credit several women writers. He credited Mariah Edgeworth and Anne McVicker Grant. And he said a few things about they did this, but I did this and I did it better. <laughs> you know, so his his acknowledgement of them is slightly snarky in my reading. But he didn't thank the Porter sisters or acknowledge them, although they were at that point in the United Kingdom, the best known and best selling historical novelists. So it is really a a kind of an egregious overlooking his not mentioning them at all. But when you learn that they actually knew each other at children as children in Edinburgh, you know, it's like then it becomes a whole, uh, you know, another entire level of wrongdoing. Yeah, then he just becomes a dick, doesn't he? <laughs> he does not come off very well. <laughs> and, you know, I'm sure he had his reasons. And in his journal, 
Some of them are listed. He doesn't seem to have liked Jane's best-selling novel from 1810, The Scottish Chiefs, which was a William Wallace story. He doesn't seem to have liked that very much. He complains that she turns him into a kind of perfect Christian hero. That is true, and that is fair enough. You know, if you want to say that her uh, novel is no good for that reason, you certainly could. Uh, but I don't think that's true. I think it it spoke to readers then. It certainly took liberties with historical material. And Scott was deliberately not mentioning them, deliberately not mentioning them. And the book, the biography, Sister Novelist, goes into what happened later in their lives when Jane decided finally to call him out. And it did not go well for her. How about that as a a slight slight plot, uh, plot spoiler? It did not go well for her. Dinah's just waving a sign at her camera that says, gaslighting! I think that is fair. I think he definitely gaslighting. He is leaving them out of his history intentionally. And they at first took it because, you know, this was a period of borrowing and repurposing. I mean, they weren't, they weren't fools. They understood that. We had an episode about the concept of copyright and things at this period as well and about how people were literally just robbing each other, like newspapers and it just, just, you just took what you wanted. Absolutely. And they knew that. And they had, you know, they had adapted other people's work themselves. I think what they really wanted was just a public acknowledgement that they mattered. And especially as Scott became so much more popular. I mean, Jane and, and Mariah were very popular best-selling novelists, as I said, household names in this period. But gradually into the 1820s, Scott started to suck all of the air out of the room. And they saw it happening to themselves in the 18-teens and into the 1820s. By the late 1820s, Jane had had enough. And she publicly, first anonymously, and then under her own name, said, I was the first to introduce historical fiction in this new species of, of fiction writing. You know, that where we say the origins of the historical novel are, maybe that's a separate question. <laughs> but for this period, Scott was getting the credit, the porters were being written out, and she fought against it finally. And as I said, did not go terribly well for her. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Well, we respect her for it anyway, don't we? I certainly (laughs) do. We like that she tried. We like that she tried. (laughs) Because that's the thing, isn't it? Even with, you know, the women um, who were able to gain some success like them, ultimately, you know, to be remembered in posterity. I mean, yeah, you know, if this so-called great man of literature, the whole kind of great men of the time thing, had actually acknowledged them, that would have been, you know the right thing to do and a good thing for them to be associated with his works into the future although of course for us you know they should just be associated for their own brilliant works mm-hmm. they did um, and another um, instance isn't it of a great man turning out to be a douche 
Yeah. <laughs> yes. Put them on a list with Dickens and that wall down the middle of Dickens's bedroom. Let's put them on the same list. Exactly. And like you said, Devonie, the about the all the various men in their life, you know, letting them down. I mean, that's just another example of it, isn't it, really? Where just yeah, as you read through the book, you just see them have all these high hopes for these various kind of men that they meet or admire from afar and it yeah, doesn't usually go well. And some men did help them. You know, I, I should be fair. Some did, but it often came with a cost or a price. And one of the stories that a chapter tells is of a male mentor Jane Porter had, and he did tell her what to read, helped her with writing exercises in her teens, but then in her twenties sort of entrapped her in the situation in the North of England, being his caregiver and working on his memoirs and wouldn't give her the money to send her home. So she was sort of a prisoner in this man's home. And it it was very psychologically confusing and difficult at that period. And her letters from that period are just, uh, I, I mean, I think they're just so compelling what she had to face in both being grateful to this older man who'd helped her, but then seeing the ways that he was taking advantage of her outrageously and trying to imprison her really. I was yeah I was absolutely raging when I was reading that section for those reasons because um I think um earlier in the book it also kind of accounts um when Jane was younger when they you know had this friendship and then she started to build friendships with other you know younger men of culture and gravitate more to them and he wasn't best pleased and yeah then fast forward to these years and and when he's ill and wants her to come and stay with him and help kind of type up his memoirs and things and then yeah she's stuck in this horrible situation I mean yeah not not great <laughs> and uh, the, their lives are just filled with stories like that which they recorded to each other in these very confessional letters and I love Jane Porter for having saved these letters and you know she says at one point I don't want them to be published but I can't bear to destroy them and you know she outlived her younger sister and I think she couldn't stomach the idea of getting rid of these beautiful letters of her sisters. I think the letters are also literary masterpieces. And I really hope that an edition of them will come into the world, uh, you know, sometime soon, it deserves to. have to ask as well. So what are your favourites in terms of their books and why? Yeah, so I think if you want a one stop shopping place, you want to see a little bit of Jane and a little bit of Mariah, they wrote some books together. And the one-stop shopping place would be Coming Out and The Field of 40 Footsteps. Coming Out is a more novel of manners, which is really an indictment of fashionable society. That's Anna Mariah's. And The Field of 40 Footsteps is a 17th century legend about brothers in a duel and uh, the sort of superstitions that ended up coming out from this place where the duel supposedly took place. But it, it will give you a a sense of their writings. If you want to read the most famous ones, those are Jane's. And Thaddeus of Warsaw, which is her novel from 1803, it's very topical. And that is about an Eastern European refugee who comes to England and the ways that he is treated well and poorly (laughs) and tries to rebuild his life. So the opening sections of the novel are very much about war and battle, which Jane Porter does not romanticize as much as other writers of this time did. They are ugly and difficult. And then sort of what he faces in England, looking for help from men and women who, when they see him, see an other. <laughs> so I think, I think that novel is, is moving. I, it has a lot of didacticism and men who cry. So if you're not okay with either of those things, uh, it didn't, it will not, uh, travel across the years quite as well for you. 
The Scottish chiefs from 1810, her Wallace story is the one that lived on the longest. And it definitely, as Scott was concerned about, so Walter Scott was concerned about, takes liberties with the history. But that is what historical fiction does, right? It, this is what historical fiction does. What I think is amazing is that it is probably the uncredited source for Mel Gibson's film Braveheart. So once again, Jane Porter's version of the Wallace story, not uh, not getting the credit due to it, although whether that's a claim to fame or a claim to shame at this point that she's connected with Mel Gibson in, in literary history, I'll let you decide that. But it, it is an actually quite moving story that reinserts domestic history, uh, women, cross-dressing women in battle. It just it has lots of interesting features to it that makes it uh, quite moving. But again, strong didacticism and not much comedy. So if you're going to it thinking this is going to be like Jane Austen, it isn't. It's it's different from that. But I think very readable, all three of these books that I've just recommended. And I think you'd find them um, interesting to read alongside historical fiction from this period, if you're a fan of that. And also interesting to read alongside the Austen and the Brontes to see the other kinds of books that were happening and that were selling beautifully and that were critically acclaimed in this period. And it's important to note with um, Jane's historical fiction as well. I'm thinking again with you saying about Walter Scott's criticisms. I mean, she, you know, she did take care to, to study some of the history. I'm thinking with um, her brother, Robert, um, when he would create those big panoramic artworks that you spoke of, she would ghostwrite the pamphlets that were produced to go alongside these paintings. And she would, and she, and I think Mariah also did this on at least one occasion for him when Jane was away you know, she would research the history, read many books to put these pamphlets together. Yes, I'm so glad you brought up this part, Beth, and that you found this part striking. This is where she really cut her teeth, I think, on history writing, was writing these pamphlets for the brothers' historical paintings, these sort of panoramic paintings, I guess is how we'd think of them today. And they were also very popular. Apparently, people would walk in. It was like an IMAX theater kind of version of history. And women who had never seen anything like this were said to have swooned and fainted because they felt like they were in battle. You know, this is the kind of thing that was reported in the newspapers. But the real situation is that Jane Porter was not swooning in the least. She was the one researching and writing the narrative accounts of her brother's visual accounts. So I think that's where she got a sense of how to use history in writing. And from there, as you say, she and Anna Maria were researching very diligently and borrowing books where they could get them. And they they knew that they needed to have some historical heft and weight along with their fictionalized stories. They hoped that their novels would have people, it would be kind of like a literary gateway drug, <laughs> would send people from fiction to history reading because they thought history reading was ennobling and important too. Yeah, and historical fiction hasn't gone anywhere, has it? It's still a massively popular genre. So yet they have become neglected, haven't they, over the years after their deaths? Um, they're not remembered in the same breath as the Brontes or Walter Scott. Why do you think that is? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. One is that I think historical fiction as a genre maybe doesn't age as well as some other kinds of genres. I think often when we read historical fiction, we are getting a picture of what the present thinks about the past. I think it becomes a, a step even more removed from a reading what the 19th century thought about the 16th century. <laughs> you know, a lot of their novels, the things that they chose to write about from past centuries had everything to do with Napoleonic France. You know, they were, they were looking at countries that were invaded and the ways that from the perspective of those who were invaded. 
So this was very topical. Napoleon was not so thrilled with with Jane Porter's novels. He, in fact, banned them or stopped them from being published in and, uh, you know, sent around France. So he he was definitely keen to the idea, you know, aware of the idea that these novels didn't reflect very well on him as an invader. Uh, so I think that's one reason. Historical fiction of our of the moment, it's published in maybe harder to grasp when it's past historical fiction of the past. But the other reason I think the Porter sisters didn't come down to us is because increasingly their novels were classed as children's literature. And we know from the history of children's literature that that can be the kiss of death with critical acclaim in the academy. As these novels were abridged, um, and as late as the 1950s, the Scottish Chiefs was made into a classics illustrated comic book, for instance. So, you know, they were they were still around as children's literature, but less and less children's literature uh you know, would would not be taught in in colleges or written about by critics to the same degree. So I think those two things really led to their falling out. And of course, Scott's Rise. Scott's Rise had a lot to do with their fall too. What would you like readers to take away from sister novelists? I mean, there's so much fascinating detail in there about both sisters and their careers. I mean, what would you most kind of like them to take from it? One thing I want readers to take is that the Porter sisters deserve to be remembered (laughs) for their careers, for their lives, for their very inspiring support of each other and love for each other and of other women writers. So they're just exemplary and interesting in many ways. Not that they weren't flawed, also very flawed. And their letters, the fact that they, the fact that these letters survive allows us to see just how flawed they were. So this is full color versions of their lives. We don't have that for a lot of figures from this period. So that's one thing I would hope readers could take away. The other thing I hope readers could take away is that the Porter sisters, as uber famous as they were, are not alone, that there are other figures in the history of women's writings who deserve this kind of treatment and recovery. I think the Porter sisters are unique and having left us so much evidence and having been once so famous, but they're definitely not alone. So I hope readers will continue to not only read sister novelists, but to look for stories like these and to find ways to amplify them. Nina, do you want to add anything? Incredible stuff. And I'm, I'm, this is going to sound, uh, sound like I'm just, uh, you know, bragging here, but I, I'm, I'm going to see if the local library has a copy. Um, I'm a lapsed English major, so to speak. Um, but I too had never heard of the Porter sisters. Um, and I'm as, as a historian who also thinks about women and social history, I'm fascinated at the survival of the letters and what an incredible gift that is to, to scholars and scholarship so that you've been able to get such an incredible and very intimate look into their lives as writers, into their careers, into their relationships um, with other artists and writers and with each other. That's at the, every, everyone's dream. But, but I'm also delighted um, at the, you know, at your, your clear ability, Devaney, to, to not, um, to, to resurrect them and also to make it such a fascinating story. Um, you know, because I think one of the, uh, you know, one of the problems with being a woman who studies history or being a female historical figure is how much one has to make it interesting in order to get attention. And rather than just say, these women were amazing, you should all know about them. There's always part of the project is always, why should you take the time to learn about them? There's always that big sort of step of getting over 
you know, getting people to actually pay attention where if they'd been a pair of unknown brothers, as we know, they would have, you know, we would, we would know about them. Someone would have done this and we'd know about them and everybody would be reading. So, um, you know, an incredible feat of scholarship on your part, but your, I, I admire your dedication to getting the word out there and to, and to reminding us all who they were and to hooking us into learning more and, and understanding that this is part of the, the larger project of women's writing. Um, so, thank you. So uh, thank you. Yeah, thank you for that. And I dedicated the book to librarians, archivists, and collectors. And I mean that seriously. I could not have done this book without the people who preserved the, the materials that made the stories possible, as I put it. But the first person who was uh, responsible for saving these letters was actually a notorious manuscript hoarder. <laughs> and it was uh, Sir Thomas Phillips, the famous bibliophile, who, mm-hmm. after all of these porter letters were sold for a pittance at auction, somehow got them and squirreled them away. And if you know anything about Phillips, his heirs were not so thrilled at this massive collection. I mean, he was, he was a serious, he was a serious hoarder. <laughs> they were not so thrilled at this massive collection and not being able to get rid of it. The British Library didn't buy it or the British Museum or whatever it had been at that time. So they ended up putting them at auction over the next hundred years. And the Porter sisters papers weren't auctioned off till the 1950s to the 1970s. And wow. that is how they came to the U.S. And that is how they continue to be around. So it's, it's thanks to a bibliophile and a hoarder that these letters survive. But he also sort of squirreled them away as if they were, you know, shut, shut up like gothic heroines in a castle, uh, you know, for a, a century. So you could look at it both ways there. He's both to be thanked and, uh, you know, perhaps to some uh, blame for their having been shut up. Right. So we couldn't learn sooner. But on the other hand, maybe they were waiting. <laughs> they were waiting for the right person. I love that positive way of thinking about it. I just love that. <laughs> I just might be nice. I thought the last question about um, kind of like the sisters and their relationship, because they um, have very different personalities. Yeah, the, the sisters who were very close, they were the closest of sisters, obviously, and they wrote each other so constantly that we know they were close. But they were also a very different, even opposite personalities. And they compared themselves to uh, the Miltonic poems, the Il Penseroso and L'Allegro. So the melancholy sister was Jane and the more lively sister was Mariah. But the way I like to think about it is that they were sort of like Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility heroines, Eleanor and Marianne Dashwood, before their day. They definitely, they, uh, they each had very different public reputations. Jane was this sort of tall, serious, beautiful, and both sisters were remarkably beautiful, which didn't hurt them. A beautiful, but uh, authoritative. She could command a room eventually. She was very shy at first, but as she came into adulthood, she was just a figure of grace and authority and people would just stop in their tracks when she walked in she also liked to wear these long veils so she she looked very dramatic you know she had her authorial persona going on mariah however was the sort of the fair the light bright and sparkling sister who was giddy and flirtatious and fun and i have to say her letters i have a special place in my heart for her letters because they're just so snarky and hilarious and the book opens with her reporting in 1820, a dinner party that she's been to and all of the ridiculous people at this dinner party, you know, a man who's staring at her, she says, he's either in love with me, or, you know, he thinks I'm a monster. <laughs> there, are, there are all of these things about the food, it was a gluttonous evening. And, you know, she says, I really wished for Miss Austin's pen, 
uh, it's now gone, alas, that it is. Because she said, with Miss Austin's pen, I could have immortalized the whole company. And that's a letter that I read early on. And I thought, you know what? You actually have in these letters immortalized the whole company. <laughs> Your pen is absolutely as brilliant in eviscerating these social ridiculousnesses <laughs> as Austin's was. And so I have a special place in my heart for Mariah's doing that. Uh, but Jane was clearly the more powerful one who made things happen. And together they supported each other through these remarkable careers. Oh, it's a wonderful place to, to wrap up our chat on the Porter Sisters. Thank you so much, Devaney. Um, how can um, listeners get hold of your book and find you on social media to learn more about the wonderful Porter Sisters? It's been published by Bloomsbury US and it is out um, as of October 2022. So it's out. And the uh, book has a website, sisternovelist.com, where I keep extra illustrations to uh, help enrich the reading experience of the book. A little bit of an overview there if you're still deciding whether you'd like it. And then links to places that you can purchase it from there. So I hope readers will check out Sister Novelist uh, and, and check out the website, sisternovelist.com. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Beth, Alex and Nina for having me on History Hack. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books. You can support them and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.